Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Makers and Mystics podcast, Season 8, Episode 10, 2020 in the Rearview. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment and say thank you to our patrons and members of the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. Your support of this podcast has enabled me to create over 165 episodes of interviews and artist profiles, as well as foster a growing community of artists supporting artists. We couldn't have made it this far without you, and we're grateful. If you've been inspired by this podcast and would like to support the continuing production of these episodes and online offerings, please consider making a one-time donation or joining our creative collective at patreon.com makersandmystics. We have several tiers of patronage you can choose between, starting at $1 a month for additional content, monthly book recommendations and reflections, or for $10 a month, you can join our bi-monthly book clubs and private online group, and then you can go up to $100 a month, where I offer regular creative coaching and artist support. You can find the link to these details in the show notes of this episode and on our official website at makersandmystics.com. In this episode, I'm going to share some of my favorite highlights from this year's conversations we've had on the podcast. I don't often plan the order I release my interviews and artist profiles, I just go with my gut. But it's fascinating now here at the year's end to look back at the catalog of discussions we've had this year and see the unintended red thread weaving its way through the pathless maze of 2020. In fact, the cliche, hindsight is 2020, becomes this moment's most truthful refrain. Coming into this year, I don't think many of us could have amply prepared for what was ahead. Like many of us, I attempted to spend the first part of our year planning for what was to come and reflecting on the lessons learned from the year we were leaving behind. I mentioned it in the episode, The Artist as Protest Against Despair, but it became darkly ironic that we chose the theme of perception, how we see, as the Breath in the Clay community's theme for the year. But after the Australian bushfires welcomed us into 2020, followed by the arrival of murder hornets, a global pandemic, police shootings and protests, the death of celebrities and well-known political figures, the impeachment of the American president and a worldwide shutdown, tornadoes ravaging Music City, and now the Christmas Day bombing of Nashville as well, this theme of perception and learning to see from a higher perspective could have seemed like an ill-timed idea at best, and at worst, one that overshadowed our own personal challenges and tragedies like an impish prank. Unless, of course, hindsight is 2020. Alongside the global atrocities that have characterized this year, Many of us, especially those working in the arts and entertainment industries, have been deeply affected by the repercussions of these events on a personal level. Many of us have been reduced in almost every area of our lives. Our schedules have been reduced, our finances have been reduced, our ability to feel like we are making a difference in the world has been reduced, dreams have been reduced, tour schedules and the ability to go to dance studios reduced, opportunities all reduced. But I can't help but take courage from the story of Gideon, whose army was reduced from 10,000 to 300, 
And it was not until then that he did the impossible. And I can't help but think of Jesus, who at one time had throngs of people following him, and then suddenly they were reduced to 12, and then those 12 were reduced to three. And then as he lay dying on the cross, even those three had abandoned him, with no one but his mother and a scattered few standing at the foot of the cross as he died. And then came the miracle of redemption. I think of the loaves and the fish, when thousands of hungry people were in the desert and had only one small child's lunch to provide for them. They were reduced to nothing. But when they added thanksgiving to the not enough, when they added thanksgiving to the inadequate, when they added thanksgiving to the impossibility, the impossible gave up its secret and multiplied. It became more than enough. In fact, they had baskets of leftovers. So what if we apply this same principle of ridiculous trust and offer thanksgiving for this insane year? What miracle of multiplication might find its way to our doorstep? What victory over impossible circumstances might we find if we conclude our year with thankfulness and if we see our reduction not as loss, but as a way of making room for what is surely to come? You know, art, beauty, and creativity are no strangers to chaos, destruction, and hardship. That's absolutely nothing unique to 2020. In fact, some of the most provocative art has been birthed out of the tragedies of war, plague, social unrest, mental illness, and personal brokenness. There's a resiliency in art, and I believe in the heart of the artist, planted by divine design and defying the supremacy of evil intention. This is why I say that we must create anyway, not in spite of the atrocities of the world, but because of the atrocities of the world. It's not just a catchy tagline that I came up with. I mean what I say. Keep creating. The world needs your art. And maybe I'm just feeling the intensity of the moment because the Nashville bombing is still so fresh in my mind at the time of this recording. Or maybe it's because at the close of this insane year, I'm looking back in the rear view at all we've come through. But regardless of what is motivating my words, I want to be so bold as to say to you who have journeyed with us throughout this year and who have held on to one another like a lifeline, I want to say to you that for the level of pain, loss, and confusion that we have all encountered in our own ways, a garden will grow through the smoldering ashes of crumbling dreams. Beauty and tragedy are not mutually exclusive, and the creative spirit cannot be killed. It only changes shape and begins again. Like the saying goes, they thought they could bury us, they didn't know we were seeds. And so just like good soil is comprised of dead things of the past, fallen leaves, broken relationships, animal bones, and decomposed bodies, so too may this year 2020 be a rich soil bed from which our imagination grows new realities and stronger connections to create a more vibrant world than we could have ever seen before walking through this pathless labyrinth. May hindsight truly be 2020, as we say peace out to the most unforgettable and unrequited year many of us have ever known.
As I look back over these incredible conversations with amazing artists and thinkers, I'm grateful for the silver lining of these discussions. And if nothing more than serving as a tiny light beating back the darkness of our isolation, this year's conversations have been a lifeline of hope for my own life, as well as many of you who have communicated to me how the podcast has helped you get through this year. We started this year on the podcast with our January 8th episode from Season 6, Episode 12, A Walk Through Digital Babylon. In this episode, Barna Group researcher David Kinneman talked with us about cultivating healthy habits regarding our online engagement and how being overly stimulated by our digital world impacts the life of the artist. It's interesting to me that we began the year with this talk on digital moderation and then entered a world that mostly functioned only in a virtual space. After this opening conversation, we took the podcast to the West Coast, where we talked with poet Tanasha LeRae on the poetic encounter and the importance of remembering where we've come from. And from there... Our conversation with memoirist Sunel Barnes echoed a similar theme when she discussed writing about her own traumatic past as an agent of healing. And then next, I spoke with author John Eldridge, who surprisingly also echoed similar concerns on those of the Digital Babylon episode and offered a simple practice called the one-minute pause, which can serve to recenter us in peace amidst a busy and chaotic world. Take a listen to this. Well, in the book, you offer five daily habits to help minimize this type of distraction and also to bring healing to your soul. And, and the first one that you talk about is the one-minute pause. Tell me some about what this one-minute pause is. Yeah, yeah, partly because you got to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Like you can't, you know, as much as most of us and most of your listeners would love to like retire to a monastic life or... <laughs> move to the South Pacific or, you know, it's not going to happen. We got jobs, we got real worlds. And, and so I knew for myself, I have a full life, just like everybody else. I got bills to pay and, you know, trash to take out. And I, I knew that I had to find some things that I could do in my day. Mm -hmm. And so it really began with a simple practice of, I realized I never stopped. It, it, it was get up in the morning and go. And, and it was, you know, straight to texting. And, and then, you know, on my commute, I would listen to podcasts and then get into work. And it was email, 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 conversation, meeting, phone call, boom, boom, boom. You know, um, just the practice of learning to pause and stop. And I mean, literally for 60 seconds, like it's doable. You know, it, it's not 30 minutes of meditation. It's 60 seconds. There's some brain research that says it's uh, it actually resets your brain and allows you to be more present which, um, to the next thing. And that's what I was really looking for. I, I wanted that sense of being able to be present. You know, when someone's talking to me, I want to really be present to them. And when I'm reading something, I want to be present to it. And, you know, when I'm enjoying my life and, you know, taking a bike ride or something, I want to be present to it. So I implemented this thing called the one minute pause and you know, I set my phone to, you know, remind me at 10 o'clock and two o'clock every day, just stop, John, just pause and breathe and let it all go. Mm -hmm. And, and here's a fun thing. This actually became, so I started sharing it with my friends 
and with our team. And now at 10 and 2 every day in our offices, monastery bells ring out. <laughs> and and it's, an, it's an interruption. Like you might be in a meeting, you might be on a phone call, um, but everybody knows, stop. 60 seconds, let it go. Mm-hmm. Like just let it all go and like recenter, find yourself again, find God, like get your head back. And it's been, it's been, it's, it's amazing that something so simple could be so transformative, but it's been huge. This next clip I want to share comes from my interview with performance artist and psychiatrist Heather Stringer. Following this thread from Tanasha and Sunel on the importance of marking the past, Heather shares about helping one of her patients make peace with her past through a symbolic act. Take a listen to this. You do have to move through certain things, whether it's some fear and anxiety, in order to come out with more meaning, um, with more orientation of, this is where my life is, this is where I want to be, where I want to head. So those two, those also dovetail, I think, together as well. Mm-hmm. Would you say that ritual making helps to ground us in our experience or that ritual making would be a tool to help us understand our own narratives and our own life stories? 100%. Yeah, I, I see it as our orientation. I see it as it's this place, yeah, to ground, to deepen our the rhythms of our life. But I think I think it's just with our lives, we're, we're busy. It's technology is wonderful, but it also can be really intrusive. And I think we have a hard time, you know, creating boundaries. Uh, so it does, it really calls us to like, ask like, where are you right now? And where have you been? And then like, where, where do you want to go? So it has this kind of past, present, future framework. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do think it has a, it has a grounding, a definite grounding effect. I'm really curious to know how the objects involved in the rituals play into it. You know, because I always think of objects being a part of whether it's something simple as lighting a candle before you sit down to write or whether it's whatever it may be. How do the objects interact with the ritual itself? I mean, depending on the narrative. So when I sit down with a person, I am diving into, again, where have you been? Like, what's what's the past? What does the past say about you? And then also, like, what are you wanting for now? Like, for this moment, like what is it that you're needing? What is it that you're hoping to experience afterwards, during and afterwards? And so the objects are very contextual. And I think they can be spontaneous. You know, there's sometimes I use dirt often. I feel like there's something about reconnecting with the earth that feels mm-hmm. really significant. So there's a variety of ways of using that. So, you know, with one woman who had lost her father and we were using the dirt in one way. It was very, it was, it was for a different purpose or meaning, but then the dirt became very much about the burial of her dad, which wasn't the original intention. And so as she was holding on to this, this dirt, she was immediately brought back to burying her father. And then we poured water over her hands afterwards. And so she had this experience of like releasing him that she, she almost felt like the heaviness of the dirt was too much so again, kind of that that reversal of energy where you're feeling the weight of something and then there's the action, the object that helps bring relief or a sensation that is soothing for someone. So this seems to me then like it very much ties in with the creative process because even what you're saying, it's a very symbolic process. It's like... Mm-hmm. 
they're very tangible metaphors is, is the phrase that comes to mind for me. Yeah, definitely. Next, I want to share a clip with you from a special interview I was given with the artist Kimbra. If you haven't listened to this episode in its entirety, I want to recommend that you go back and listen to this one fully. The insights that she shares are invaluable for the working artist. We covered everything from solitude to performance to how creativity and spirituality work together in tandem. This was truly one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. And this segment I'm going to share here highlights her thoughts on the vulnerability and the inwardness of art making, as well as some insights on how to deal with the inner critic. You know, it's interesting to me that I recorded this interview with Kimbra prior to the national shutdown, but our discussion on the importance of solitude and cultivating a healthy interior life felt a bit portentous to what we would later need to cultivate this year. It made me think about how really art making is such a vulnerable space in general, you know, yeah. whether whether you're the subject in that example of someone else's art or whether you as a songwriter and a composer, you're the one making the art. It's art making is such a vulnerable space. Oh, it really is. And it's a lot of time spent inside, um, both inside my apartment and the studio, but also inside your mind. And that can be... Um, that can be vulnerable in of itself because you come into contact with um, wonderful things like imagination and sorcery and kind of these fantastic superpowers. But you also come into contact with, you know, <laughs> we've already talked a bit about this, the inner critics and yeah. those things that that seek to kind of push us down. Um, mm. So it's vulnerable for that reason too. Yeah. It's fascinating you bring that up about the inner critic because recently in our creative collective, We've been reading the book Art and Fear by David Bales and, and okay. Ted Orland are the authors. And in the book, the authors talk about uh, those inner critics that we carry with us that flood us with questions about what other people are going to think about what we're making, if our work is important, if it's worth even pursuing. And I would love for you to speak into that a bit if you could. Like, how do you handle your own inner critics? Do you have any like rituals or practices that help you deal with some of that darker stuff? Yeah. Oh man, it is a, it's a daily, um, I will say struggle because, you know, it's the thing that holds me back from stepping into the studio. I, I look at the studio, I want to go in there, but then I do become, you know, flooded with, yeah, but what if I don't come up with anything good? What if I'm left there by myself with an idea that's just not good enough? What if I, you know, uh, can't stop thinking about expectations people have of me what if what if and I think I take an inventory these days you know I, before I step in I kind of look into okay what am I scared of right now um and just be okay with that just know that they're going to be there in the room but they don't have to take over you know mm -hmm. um <laughs> some people have techniques with you know managing anxiety and stuff to to even give it a name you know like I kind of but it's just like he is not in touch with reality and he's just going <laughs> right. to keep talking, you know? And I think some days I have to kind of compartmentalize like that. Um, I, I also have a little ritual of like not dressing up as such, but kind of really trying to intentionally arrive in the studio with a coat of armor, which might actually just be like a lovely dress or like something that, you know, I, just, I like to think of it as, not only my job, but my deep heart work, you know, this I love is that. my, 
my, it's it's a place of prayer as well when I come mm-hmm. into the studio, you know, maybe I'll light a candle and like be mm-hmm. in flowing fabric because I want to um, honor the potential of what can happen mm-hmm. when you give yes. yourself up to inspiration. Um, and, you know, this may be a practice I have to do 10 times a day, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not just a do it once and we're off on a great start. It, it, I really want to encourage others battle with the self consistently. Mm-hmm. But those are some ideas that I have. I think my meditation practice and daily sort of silence is a form of self-acceptance, quieting the mind, so to speak, so that I'm better in a better position to turn up to the studio because I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I know what's going on. I'm becoming familiar with it. But I also am trying always come back to the inner child Mm -hmm. and I would say that maybe that is also the place where God resides in us like Mm -hmm. that that doesn't judge and doesn't it's just a witness to things and genuine joy and genuine excitement um so whatever takes me in that direction if I get that excited feeling by a new sound or a putting on a wreck that joy then I know I'm I'm moving in the direction away from criticism and toward non-judgment and playfulness yes come on (laughs) Mm. a few other themes that made their way to the podcast this year which seemed pertinent to our collective experience were themes of healing and art as a conduit for both personal and social healing Our live conversation from Charlottesville, Virginia, led the way in this discussion and then resurfaced in my conversation with the electronic duo Elephant Heart and also poet Thea Matthews and several other discussions on the show as well. Here's a clip from my conversation with Elephant Heart on the ethos of healing that I thought was absolutely fascinating to revisit. I love this idea that in the midst of a chaotic environment, you created from a posture of peace and you brought healing through your music. I love that approach. Yeah, it's that's it's pretty easy, you know, when you're when you're sad or depressed. Let's just say it's easy, but that's the go-to is hey, when I'm sad and depressed, I want to write a sad and depressed song. But it's kind of like it's uh, looking at the whole picture of this and be like, okay, how can we just go inside of it and shine light out and like you know, and I feel like music is, I think music is one of the most healing things in the world because. It's it's like an angelic language, you know. It's it's mm-hmm. it touches all the senses, and you can't figure out why. Like why does why does this note on the piano make me feel happy? Why does this note make me sad? And you know, you can mm-hmm. go scientific with it and say, well, it's the culture and this and that. But there is like you know, when life is actually in harmony, when things are working, it sounds it, it goes beautiful. When you play one note out of key, the whole thing could fall apart. So it's 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 very. I look at I look at music and life in that way too, where harmony plays such a an important factor. It was so healing, and I started to realize that a lie I believed my whole life was be small, don't shine too bright, you know, like, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. Like, growing up in a very conservative Christian church, like, where no one even raised their hands. Like, if someone raised their hands, you'd be like, oh, they're they're trying to show off. So, you know... Growing up that way, I, I you know I left it because I was like, whoa, this this is so weird. Went so wild, and then when I had like this God encounter that was real to me for the first time, and I actually remember being in worship and being like, I want to raise my hands, but can I? Can I not? Mm-hmm. I think it took me like a year, so I was just like, ah, because I was like, if I could be someone at a festival that just feels secular music like that, like 
I would understand that everyone is different in their posture, but my character yeah, is this a wild, wild girl. <laughs> and so it was just through the music, through like lots of prayer and realizing like it's not wrong to go be out there and maybe you're in the center of attention, but what is it for? Because it, it wasn't, I was like, if this, I don't even like to actually call what I'm doing performing because that makes it Yeah, it's about, it's more about like you're performing for, for these people. Like, performing, I just, I want to go up there and like just get lost. And like if people are, whatever, if it's parts of worship, parts of this warrior songs, parts are just, like I want to like love and speak life over people. Then I, all of a sudden, like God made me realize like that is okay. Like get out there. You know that there's no stopping me. Next, I want to share a clip from the wonderful conversation I had with On Being's Poetry Unbound host, Padraig Otuma. Padraig and I talked about poetry and the importance of language as a means of conflict resolution. His insight and brilliance that he shared with us in this episode is one that I'm going to find myself returning to again and again as we go forward into the future. Take a listen to his words on language as conflict resolution. Something you said made me think, at the same time, words have the power to hide as well as words have the power to reveal. Mm. It fascinates me about the power of words to either reveal or to hide. Well, we see it all the time now. It's nothing new, but words are used for truth-telling as well as for truth-hiding. To think about an old phrase, somebody as part of the colonial enterprises came up with the term the new world, which appealed to people's sense of exploration and discovery, so-called, as well as gave them a convenient clause to deny any bit of conscience that was there um, in terms of uh, this isn't a new world. This is a world as old as the world we're in. And there are peoples there who um, aren't new to themselves. Um, and they have their own sovereignty and their own land and languages, etc. So that's a way within which language is um, denying integrity. And I'm always interested in how language can push itself. And if language can be unafraid, well, then therefore a question isn't a problem. My studies in theology were really formed by studying Midrash, the Jewish process of asking questions within the text mm-hmm. and uh It's like psychoanalysis before psychoanalysis, Freud before Freud, Mm -hmm. and better than Freud, because it's not obsessed with penises. It asks over (laughs) and over again the question of power and asks what's going on here, why, and pushes the question and the definition of God and understands that if a question is good, it should be asked. And if somebody is resistant to a good question being asked, well, then they have to ask themselves some serious questions. And that for me is part of what language can do to itself, that language, if it's being used with integrity, has the capacity to ask the really or why or where question or what happened then or why like that or ask the question about who's the narrator here? What's happening? And so studying Midrash, I think, gave me both artistic curiosity about um, how to push a poem's text and to to believe that language can be moved into integrity and vulnerability. And also then when it comes to conflict, to ask questions and to not be afraid. Why did you just say that? You just used a word three times in two sentences. What an interesting poetic you're creating. So I have come 
to conflict resolution absolutely informed by the poem-making process that poets are involved with, placing word after word, line break, placing attention on repetition, on alliteration, all of these techniques that you'd have learned about in school. These techniques aren't the high lofty art of poetry and we ordinary mortals just go along here talking ordinary language. (laughs) It's the other way around. Ordinary mortals go along here saying the most extraordinary things without thinking about it and poetry just pays attention and tries to mimic that when it can. And in conflict, especially when conflict is escalating, people say the most remarkable things. And it has been a very helpful thing to have the ears and curiosity of a poet and paying attention to people and and the content of what they're saying when they're in conflict. The first word they use, the final word they use, the way that they place emphasis. Well, they put three words beginning with B after each other. B, B, B. We call that a plosive in as we think about the music of sound and from which explosive comes from. And so plosive words are so explosive. They carry a lot of power and Mm -hmm. you want to pay attention to that. And when you say to people, God, you just used the word bloody there. What an interesting word. And intrinsically, if you can do it without making people feel awkward, people will go, yeah, because. And then they'll have a whole drop down list of a reason why um, that word was the right one to use. Or they might correct themselves. And all of that is so interesting and so informative. In conflict resolution, you're taught that everything is information. And so when you're observing a conflict or you're within a conflict, the idea is to get to the level of seeing with curiosity and maybe even wonder some of the difficulties about what's happening in the place of conflict. And um, Mm -hmm. the ears of poetics have helped me so much in that, to be curious about language Mm -hmm. and then to pay attention. And always in a conflict situation, whether I'm involved or whether I'm observing and mediating, you have to diminish the defensiveness, the ego that wants to rise up. But that's a human project that we'll be doing for the rest of our lives. Okay, friends, lastly, I'm going to leave you with a clip from one of my own keynote talks that I shared here on the podcast. It comes from a talk that I gave in Frederick, Maryland earlier this year called Disenchantment and the Reemergence of Wonder. And I wanted to share this clip with you because as we put a close to the year 2020 and begin looking ahead to 2021, I want to call our attention to the idea of reenchantment. For many of us, 2020 was a very disenchanting year. But you know, hope is relentless and continues to come uninvited at all the wrong times. And so as we go forward into this year 2021, I want to declare this as a year of re-enchantment, a year of rediscovering wonder, and a year of hoping against all hope until we see the fruit of our deepest longings, a world renewed and rebuilt and recreated, a world built upon truth and love a world built upon deep connection, a world built upon bravery to step out into the unknown and to do the impossible, a world re-enchanted with life. Around the turn of the century when the Enlightenment happened, this German sociologist named Max Weber came up with this phrase that he coined called disenchantment. And basically what disenchantment means is that Society was moving away from being centered in religion 
and superstition and myth to being centered in reason and rationality and empirical evidence, right? And for a while, everybody thought that was cool because finally we can get out from under the thumb of religion, right? Finally, we can start thinking rationally. And so this idea of disenchantment meant that we were no longer just accepting the testimony of religion because it was the dominant narrative in the world. But what I see happening is that we are in a place where the, the human heart is searching for re-enchantment. We're looking for re-enchantment. What does re-enchantment mean? And why am I talking to you about this? Because the artist is right at the center of the conversation of re-enchantment. Because re-enchantment acknowledges that we have a need for reverence. We have a need for something bigger than ourselves. We have a need to be a part of something that's larger, you know. Let me read you this quote here. This is from an author. Her name is Susie Gablick. And she wrote a book called The Reenchantment of Art. And she says, Boredom, cynicism, and chronic materialism are all symptoms of our higher need for an ecstatic dimension in our life. She is wrestling with these questions that she's coming to the place of understanding that boredom, cynicism, chronic materialism are symptoms that the human heart has a higher need for an ecstatic dimension. I love that phrase. We have a need for an ecstatic dimension. And that's why I think that the path of the maker and the path of the mystic are one and the same. And that's why I feel like right now that the artist is responding to the human heart's need for re-enchantment. Okay, my friends, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for journeying with us through this year 2020. We look forward to seeing you again in 2021. Our book club starts up next Wednesday night if you want to join and join us for that throughout the month of January. We'll be continuing with season eight. I've got several interviews coming up that I cannot wait to share with you. So keep up with us. Thanks so much for listening and for supporting the podcast. And don't forget that tickets to the Breath in the Clay 2021 happening in March are on sale now, both for the limited live broadcast attendance and for the virtual experience. And also for artists, our call for art is now open for submissions until January 30th. And you can see the show notes of this episode for that link. And you can also visit thebreathintheclay.com for details. I hope you have a safe and happy new year and that you don't stop believing that the best is still yet to come.